Please be advised this episode contains themes that some listeners may find triggering, and language that some may find offensive. My name is Maya Howells. I am one of 20,000 women and men who have been spiked in Britain today, but that number is just the tip of the iceberg. And that iceberg led me to start this podcast. In this episode, I learn about the drugs we are being spiked with. Drugs like GHB or Hypnol, they are odourless, colourless, um, mixed with liquids quite easily. And all about the kind of person motivated to spike someone else. An individual who literally sees a human being as just baggage. So join me and get under the skin of one of the most insidious and common crimes in the UK today. This is Pricks, episode two, Methods and Madness. Within days of starting my campaign, I learned that plenty of people, certainly way more than we hear about in the news or from the statistics, have been spiked. And by the time this podcast goes out, the number will be higher. As Helena Conybear, from the Alcohol Trust told me, spiking is everywhere. There's almost this stereotype of spiking, and I'm not, I'm not belittling that at all, is that it's always young women, always in nightclubs and always by strangers. Over 20% of cases, the drinks that are spiked are non-alcoholic, and it's happening in cafes and fast food chains. I mean, it's really shocking. That sounds mad to me, but it's true. I've seen accounts from people spiked in McDonald's, someone who's drinking orange juice. I spoke to a man in his 50s the other day who was spiked at a dinner party. It was a really civilised affair, I ate two drinks. And about an hour in, I remember feeling like I, had losing, I was losing control of my limbs and I couldn't see properly. According to my wife, she's a nurse, I started behaving really, really strangely and she decided to take me home. The next morning, I couldn't remember anything had happened. It was, it was a dinner party for normal professional people, friends and colleagues. It shows you it can happen to anyone. I think it makes the issue even scarier. Nowhere is off limits. But whether it's at a club or a cafe, I think it's important to understand exactly what spiking involves. The nuts and bolts of it. So when someone says that they've been spiked, what do they mean? And what exactly has happened to them? My name's Dr Will. I'm a doctor working in North Central London. I wanted to pick the brains of an A&E doctor, someone on the medical front line who deals with people saying that they've been spiked. The majority of time, if they're presenting right at the initial stages, they will present with someone else who's concerned about their well-being. Sometimes they'll present a bit later the next day, which is more concerned about they don't know, don't remember what's happened or they have concerns about physical or sexual assault, those kinds of things. So it's, it can really quite be quite a varied presentation, really. I wanted to know what the process was to figure out whether someone had, in fact, been spiked. It, it is really difficult because ma- majority of patients or people who come into any concerns about spiking tend to be inebriated from alcohol in the first instance anyways so it it just muddies the water a bit in terms of they are intoxicated most of the time 
and then it's trying to really work out what part is likely to do to intoxication or what partly is from the possible spiking element really. But there are blood tests that can be done right? You may have a set of blood tests just to make sure that there's nothing concerning in the standard set of blood tests but most of the time the toxicology so either blood or urine don't necessarily really give us much information. Most of the time, there's probably going to be an element of intoxication from alcohol. So that will probably come up positive, but everything else will be negative. Most of the time, the, the drugs that they use in date rape or drink spiking is processed quite rapidly by the body. And those tests don't really give us much information about what's happened because they may have already been kind of removed by the body. So it's quite difficult. Most of the time, it's just when they're in, when these patients are in AA, it's just making sure they're actually okay, safe and well, really. I asked Dr Will exactly what kind of drugs he'd be looking for in a drug test. The kinds of drugs most commonly used in spiking incidents. The the most reported or concerned ones are, are, are is, a, is a drug called GHB, or and there's another one that, that people are probably more aware of called Rehypnol. But there's also other things that that are taken or given recreationally, things like ketamine as well, can also be associated with drink spiking. There's also prescription drugs that people can get their hands on and, and use for um, drink spiking as well, things like diazepam, those kinds of sedative drugs. So there's quite a wide-ranging number of things it could be most listeners will have a pretty firm idea of why these drugs are used and what their effects are on people ingesting them. But I asked Dr Will to spell it out. The main idea would be, I guess, to, to incapacitate their, 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 their victim. Drugs like GHB or Hypnol basically do that in quite a rapid way because they are odourless, colourless, um, mixed with liquids quite easily. So it essentially is just a way of sedating the person and it also creates amnesia as well so they don't necessarily know or remember what's happened either. Those are the main kind of aims is of, the, of the drugs they use really. And how long do these drugs take to work? So it's usually about 30 minutes I would probably say is, is kind of the, the, from ingestion to, to actually having a, a physical effect. It can be it can be quicker than that. And things like GHB, they they can be individual to each person. So so one a small dose for, for one one person can could have a huge effect, whereas on another person it can have hardly any effect. And Dr. Will told me that the real golden ticket for the spiker is that the drugs, the medical evidence of a crime are often processed by the victim's body before their presence can even be properly determined. Usually it's within 12 hours, it's pretty much all gone. So if you don't really present within that time, as I say, most people don't always come straight away when they when they think they've been spiked. They may be kind of well enough to go home and then present the next morning worried. And by that time, it may be uh, that it's been already processed. And Dr. Will said not to be hesitant about going to A&E if you believe you've been spiked, with a cautionary list of the effects and what to look out for. The main things would be persistent, persistent vomiting, so sedated that they're, they're just not even either rousable, the laboured breathing, or not responding to you at all. Then I would definitely think that they need assessment straight away. 
So it's pretty clear that the range of reactions to being spiked is vast. And that's really important to remember. Just because you're having a different reaction to your pal who's been spiked doesn't mean you have not been. Everyone's experience is unique. So whether it's vomiting for days in reaction to the drugs put in your drink, blinding headaches, or being paralytic and not having control of your limbs, with all spiking cases, there is some kind of physical impact to deal with. One minute I was perfectly fine and all of a sudden being carted away in an ambulance with no memory of what happened to me. That's Sharon Gafka. You might remember her from Series 7 of ITV's Love Island. Sharon has been spiked six times in her adult life and is remembering one particular incident. My best friend's doctor, she put a hand on the back of my, on the back of a hand near my mouth and couldn't feel breath. When you get spiked, it's not just the spiking, there's other injuries that tend to come with it. I went to hospital and when I left hospital where they'd put cannula in my hand and dripped either side in each arm, I was covered in bruises. Like for whatever reason, they couldn't find veins or anything. Like I was covered in blood. I had loads of scratches, like bruised up and down. I was really tender. And obviously that doesn't go away very easily, especially when you're as bruised as heavily as I was. And of course, with needle spiking, there's a very real possibility that you've been injected with a dirty or infected needle. Being spiked by injection brings its own set of medical consequences, which reach far beyond a body's immediate reaction to a drug. Rebecca Derbyshire was spiked by injection in October of 2021, and the medical consequences of that night have been far-reaching. As soon as I uh, reported it to the police, they were pretty good in saying, you've got to go to hospital, obviously. If it's a needle that's dirty, then you could potentially have like HIV and hepatitis as well, so any kind of like blood disease. And even though it, it's rare, so they, they advised me to go to the doctors and see what they could do in terms of giving me a test. It was more of the, the mental aftermath of having to get like HIV tests and, and things like that because it might have been a dirty needle, especially if he's going around and like jabbing multiple people in a night. And even though the risk is like very slim, it doesn't make it any less scary. I wouldn't go out of the house. Um, I really struggled like getting out of bed in the morning. Um, and I, it was more like the anticipation of waiting for them results back. Um, I thought that like once I'd received my results and they were fine, that I would be okay. But like them months and months waiting and I'm still not necessarily in the all clear now. Rebecca will have to wait a few more weeks before she's officially given the all clear from all her tests or deal with the results if she's not. For her, the aftermath is a continual reminder of what happened. It stops the mental scars from healing properly. And that's something which Eki, the next woman we speak to, knows all about. And please be aware that the next section of this podcast contains details and references to sexual assault, which some listeners may find triggering. I had, like, just turned 18. It was the summer I turned 18. I was unstoppable. And I just got my A-level results. I was repeating a year, so I wasn't going to university that year. I was going back to college. I had done better than I thought. So I went out with a few friends. We went to a club in East London. I went with a group of three friends, so four of us in total. We were in the upstairs room. He was dead. So then we went downstairs, which was more alive, which is always the case with this place. The club is large and it was packed. Eki went to the toilet and when she came back, 
she couldn't find her friends. I think it was a classic thing of we're all looking for each other, so everyone's just moving and just, yeah. So I lost them. I literally couldn't find them again, so I was just like, fuck this. There was no signal in the club to text her mates. Eki reached for her jacket. She figured she might as well go home. But then my song came on. And as she danced, she saw someone who she thought was fit. Yes, I went over. We were talking. He bought me a drink. Basically ended up chilling with him and his friends. And because they were in a large group and there were other girls there, you know, when you see other women, you just feel safe. So I was like, perfect. The group chatted and danced and drank. And when they were ready to leave, they invited Eki to come along with them. Honestly, I don't know if it, if it had happened already. He'd been giving me my drinks all night, so he had plenty of opportunity to. I don't know if this was when it happened or when we got back, but all I know is I do not remember anything. Eki doesn't remember leaving the club. She doesn't remember the bars they went to next or the restaurant they went to eat at. She doesn't remember any of it. In fact, it was only pictures on her phone and her messages which helped fill the blanks. Looking in my phone the next day and seeing stuff I just did not remember at all, that really concerned me. But also it kind of saved me because that's when my antennas were up. Eki remembers the next day, feeling a tightness between her legs. It was very, it was very, very, very painful. But she didn't want to properly face what that might mean. I denied it for a really long time. I was so naive. Whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm sorry, but date rape didn't happen outside of like PSHC day. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff didn't happen outside of them videos that they show you in school on them like well-being days, as far as I'm concerned. Like rape, rape culture, like none of none of those conversations and none of that stuff was even happening back then as well. So even in terms of being able to identify... I, of course, I was, it, the only natural reaction for me would have been to internalise it. Do you know what I mean? Unless it was a man pulling you in an alley, you weren't like, it wasn't rape. It just wasn't. Eki's feelings of denial, shutting it away and pretending it didn't happen, they're understandable. You'd want to put those memories in a box and hide it away, never to be seen or opened up again. But then something happened, which meant the truth was absolutely undeniable. Then my period being late and then having to, you know, go to the doctor. Eki was pregnant. And that was when, that was really when I was like, oh, because I didn't remember doing this with this person. And at this point, being completely transparent, I had only had sex with one person. I was a late bloomer. I hate that phrase, but I was, I, 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 sex was not something that <laughs> was on my mind. So it wasn't something I did with a lot of people a lot of the time. Eki had an abortion and she's chosen to waive her anonymity as a victim of sexual assault to share her experience, to raise awareness. Because what happened that night, as well as what transpired afterwards, has been truly life-altering for her. Life-defining. Like Eki, I had my own preconceptions about date rape. 
about the kind of sexual predator who could do something like that to anyone else. A shadowy figure in an alley, a deviant, a psychopath. But let's face it, with the statistics about spiking on the rise, this isn't just one or two Freddy Krueger types on the prowl. I wanted to understand more about the people who commit the kind of act that was committed to Eki. I spoke to a psychologist to try and make sense of it all. My name's Emma Kenny. I'm a psychologist and broadcaster. So on one level, I work in the media. I'm on a lot of shows talking about things like traumatic experiences through crime or doing a range of phone-ins for people like this morning. But on a private level, I still run a lot of mental health groups. I work with people who are highly traumatized by experiences of abuse. And so even though people will see me in the mainstream in written and visual form, the reality is that my core passion is working with people who have experienced really high level stress and trauma. And through Emma's work, spiking was firmly on her radar. I mean, I've heard a great deal about the spiking increase in the UK. And of course, arguably on one level, we can say likelihood is that women and men have always had situations where they've been affected in similar ways, but we know more about it now. It also probably means that a very small minority of individuals are also hearing about this and thinking about utilising these opportunities for themselves. Emma told me that the people doing this aren't stupid. And though a small number might be hearing about stories of spiking and trying it out themselves, the likelihood is that spikers are calculated and they know what they're doing. War criminals are smart. They don't want a victim to fight. They don't want a victim to defend themselves and they certainly want to get whatever they want from the victim. But how have these people developed the thinking that it's okay to incapacitate someone else? There are certain, shall we say, cultural biases about certain women of certain types. It's not nice to hear, but unfortunately, if the fundamental belief system is she's a slut, therefore she deserves it. It's totally rubbish, but if that's a bias I need to be a predator, she looks like she's wanting it. We still have that. And if you have a cultural bias that says, well, she's less than my standard, therefore I have a right to put my hands on her, that's going to be one level. That's the minute level, though. So I'd say the very, very minute amount of people would fit that category of predator. So somebody with a cultural bias that informs them that particularly that woman looking that way deserves whatever she gets, right? But the big one is an individual who literally sees a human being as just baggage to meet their needs. They would fit in line with people, similar mindsets like serial killers and psychopathic narcissists who go out of their way to just control the person they, they attack. And what Emma said really resonated with something else Eki had told me. Because, tragically, her date rape wasn't the only spiking experience Eki had had to deal with. Date rape doesn't only happen at the hands of strangers or people that you encounter by chance on a night out. Because it can happen when it's someone you know, someone you trust, even someone you're in a relationship with. I'd been talking to this person for like a long time. I was like, I trusted him, do you know what I mean? This wasn't like a steady, constant talking to this person. It was very on and off, so it was just like, I'd be talking to him for like maybe regularly for about two months and then he'd drop off the face of the earth for free and then he'd come back. After a month-long trip away, the guy Eki had been seeing got back in touch. So I went around, uh, classic Netflix, chill, put on a film, whatever. 
There was no expectation or suggestion that anything sexual would happen between them that night. It was my time of the month, so I didn't want to do anything. And I made that clear. I felt like that was fine. So the night was really chilled. Yeah, so it made me a cup of tea and I like passed out immediately. But I had been smoking weed and obviously weed makes you sleepy and stuff. So I didn't think anything. I kind of just assumed that I'd pass out at some point. And then Eki woke up and a familiar feeling settled over her. I can't, I can't even begin to explain how I felt when I woke up, but I, I felt this before. Something in me just did not feel right. And he was like fast asleep. So I got up, went to the bathroom and I was unbelievably, I was so sore. Again, Eki's immediate coping mechanism was one of denial, of disbelief. I didn't allow myself to believe that that was what happened because the guys that you're dating don't rape you. It's not someone who you've built trust with, who you've shared with, who you've spoken about your previous experiences with, who does that to you. I just told myself, no, that didn't happen. But it did happen. It does happen. And according to psychologist Emma, the fact that Eki opened up to this person about her previous date rape could have acted like a perverse green light to behave as he wanted. If they see somebody available, vulnerable, and they see them as attractive, you know, desirable, and they're accessible to them, then they will go out of their way to have whatever they want because they don't see that person as anything other than a possession. It's really scary. Okay, so we've talked about those with serious intent. The spikers on the more psychopathic end of the scale. But I've heard about others too. I found out a few days after I was spiked that it was some friends of friends that we were out with who had done it to see how I'd react. They were all laughing about it. Yes, those people who spike others as a joke. Bands. Like the man Izzy from the tab told me about. I spoke to a uni student last year who said he had been spiked at a house party um, which is actually the most common location for spiking, which I think most people don't realise. And he was told by, some, like, he was full of all of his friends, people he knew, and he was told by a friend, oh, this person spiked you, and they did it for a laugh, like, for a joke, to see the reaction. <laughs> so, for lots of these spikers, is this a case of innocent fun gone wrong? I asked Emma... If they are young people, let's say they're going clubbing with their mates and they end up dropping somebody a pill in a drink, often that's more to do with what I would say bullying. And although they won't see it as bullying, so on one level, I can see that that is just misplaced stupidity. But when it comes down to a stranger, that you want to give it to a stranger to see how that pans out, that is serious assault as well. And it's definitely amplified because it's a stranger. You have a relationship with this person. You're not going to make sure they're home safe. It's not fun for anybody in that situation. It's terrifying for the individual. So on those two levels, again, to put it in the category of hijinks is ridiculous. It's serious bodily assault. Do I think they comprehend the ramifications and danger of that? Probably not. I mean, literally, I've seen the most horrific scenarios play out where somebody has been spiked and then it's totally changed their mentality. So they have the most traumatic 12 hours of their life and it changes their life. Maybe some of you listening have been in a group where someone's been spiked for a joke. Perhaps someone was slipped something without their consent, just to see how it would play out and to all have a good laugh. 
Maybe it's become one of the legends in your friendship circles. The story you all retell when you get together. Maybe this will make you think about it differently. And then, of course, there's this new type of spiking. Spiking by injection. Is this a new madness? Or just a new method? Emma's take is that, basically, it's evolution. The problem is that what happens with predators is that predators get wise. So the more and more that we've talked about spiking in drinks, the more and more people have become conscious about it. And you'll see in clubs very often, girls and guys will actually cover their drinks, they'll make people look after their drinks when they go to the toilets. And to some degree, that bypasses a predator's opportunity. And on the second part of that is that it's much easier to walk past somebody and inject them because the person has a needle in their hand, they bang into them, no one's looking in a way that they would be looking if somebody was actually maneuvering themselves to put something in a drink. In this episode, we've spoken to victims of spiking, and we'll speak to plenty more across the series. But what do they have in common? Why them? Why were they spiked? When we speak to serial killers, to violent offenders, there is a very clear pattern that what their main categories are for selecting a victim. And it goes like this, desirability, availability, and vulnerability. So if you're sat chatting and smiling, that actually on a normal human level makes you a really great person to be around. But if I'm a predator, I want the agreeable one. I want the person who's going to feel awkward turning me down for a chat. So what we're saying is, if you're a decent, kind human being, you might be more attractive in a predator's eyes. Great. So this just goes to prove that just about anyone could be a victim of spiking. I'm a student at the University of Leeds. I was a civil servant. I work in a call centre. Whether you're a butcher, a baker or a fucking candlestick maker, let's make one thing very clear. The truth is it's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with the predator. Next time on Pricks, we head to the favoured stomping ground of the spiker, the bar. We ask if enough is being done and find out what these venues are doing to keep us safe or not. If you've been affected by spiking or the issues discussed in this podcast, there's a list of resources on the I've Been Spiked Instagram page. Pricks is a podcast production by What's The Story Sounds. The series is produced and presented by me, Maya Howells, in association with I've Been Spiked. Sound design by Daryl Brown, and our executive producer is Sophie Ellis.